All right, hey, we are jumping back into the book of Joshua. And so let me, let me give us a quick, quick recap before we dive in. Um, we, this is our sixth week, and actually it's going to be our final week. So uh, this, this is wrapping up Joshua today. But the very first week, we took a look at, at the, the commissioning of Joshua. And this is again where God said, hey, look, I need you to be strong and courageous because I'm going to be with you. Don't be strong and courageous in yourself, in your tactical awareness, in your physical strength, but be strong because I'm with you. The next week, we took a look at the faith of Rahab and how that was a saving faith and how then she's in the genealogy of Jesus, our Savior. Uh, The week after that, we took a look at Joshua's introduction and meeting with the commander of the Lord's army. After that, we took a look at the battle of Jericho. And then last week, we took a look at the Gibeonite deception, where unfortunately, the Israelites, instead of seeking God's voice and face and counsel, uh, they trusted in their own wisdom. And as a result, uh, they introduced chaos into the kingdom of God. This week, we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 24. Before we do that, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your kingdom. We thank you that you are at work through Greater Christ Temple. We thank you for your work through First Pres um, and through Three Rivers, Father, and West Rome Baptist. Father, we thank you for all of these churches that are more concerned about your glory and your honor and your son Jesus than they are about themselves. And so, Father, I pray that we would all join together um, with these churches in proclaiming our hope in your Son, Jesus, and in you, our good Father. And, Father, I pray that, um, that we would be passionate about seeing your kingdom come. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, several weeks ago, I read a little article um, called Saying I Do Again, and it was about 45 different couples that had been married for 50 or more years. They had celebrated 50 or more anniversaries together. And uh, basically what the article was doing was it was basically covering a, uh, a, a recommitment of their vows to one another. And so all of these couples got together and, uh, and they renewed their wedding vows. I'm going to read a little section of this article. It's actually really kind of cute. Here's, uh, here's the beginning of it. I'd have to be crazy to leave her, said Keith A.D., 81 years old, who has been married to Mary Jane for 57 years. She's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Love and OnStar, OnStar is a map function for your car, Eddie said, are essential to a long-lasting marriage. Satellite navigation eliminates 90% of the couple's arguments. It just tells you where to go, and you don't have to fight over where to turn, right? A little marital wisdom. It's one of the few ways technology has made relationships better. He didn't say that I did. All right. Going on, none of the 45 couples are the same young people they were when they married. They came down the aisle this Sunday with gray hair, hearing aids, canes, walkers, and wheelchairs, but the ability to change and grow old without growing apart is part of the alchemy of a long marriage. What's the secret? At the very core of who they are, uh, though it remains the same over time, some things do change. Dick and Sandy Gable of Colfax, Indiana, were religious when they met, And their faith is what held them together all of these years. They go on to say, We believe God brought us together, and just as God keeps His promises to people, we feel committed to keeping our promise to Him. One of the promises we made was death until death do us part, said Dick, 71, who married Sandy, 68, 50 years ago. And when Bill Victor, aged 91, looks at Jeanette, aged 87, he still sees the 15-year-old girl who first attracted him. To me, she still looks the same as when we first met, said Bill of Mount Dora, who married Jeanette 70 years ago, just the hair color's a little different. 
There are as many different ways to stay married for 50 years as there are couples who celebrate a half century together, but they all seem to have learned that always being right isn't always the right thing. I give in a lot, said Robert P. Attack, 76, of Marblehead, Ohio. I was going to say the same thing, said Eileen, 73, his wife of 55 years. I guess that's the answer, huh? Now, I don't know if you could see it here, but this, is, uh, this, this renewing of your vows after over 50 years of marriage is an amazing thing. It's, it's really a covenant renewal ceremony. What's interesting is in Joshua chapter 24 this morning, we're going to read about another covenant renewal ceremony, except this time, instead of renewing a covenant that has lasted 55 or 57 years, their covenant renewal relationship has been over 600 years. We're going to jump in to this covenant renewal ceremony in Joshua chapter 24. Follow along with me, if you will. Verse 1, then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And so we read in Genesis chapter 12 that it was at Shechem, this very same place, that God first promised to give Abraham the land of Canaan. So it was fitting that Israel should gather at Shechem to renew that very same covenant that had been made on that same spot 600 years previously. Verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. And so what God is doing here is he's recounting how he had chosen Abraham, how he had rescued Abraham, and how he had blessed Abraham throughout the years. Verse 5, then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. Then I brought your people out of Egypt. You came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. And so at the beginning of God's recounting to the Israelites how he had rescued their ancestors, he's been recounting that. But here in verses 5 through 7, He's not just recounting what had been done to their ancestors long ago. He's calling them to remember their own eyewitness accounts of when and how he had saved them. So many of those who had been listening to him here would have been children when they had been rescued from Egypt and when they had wandered in the desert. God's work in their lives wasn't some ancient history lesson, but rather it was their firsthand experience. Verse 8, I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I wouldn't listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. So God now recounts this story from Numbers chapter 22, verses 224, where Balak, who's the king of the, of the Moabites, hired Balaam, who was sort of this well-known seer or prophet, to pronounce a curse against Israel. And Balaam, looking for the money, accepted, but then he was confronted by an angel who would only let him speak what God commanded. And so Balaam blessed Israel over and over and over again because God would not let him curse the Israelites, thus drawing Balak, the king of Moab's ire. Verse 11, then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. 
The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites, but I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings, you did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities which you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And so God is appealing to the Israelites, right, by reminding them that all of their victories were not because of their military might, not because of their political skill, but rather their victories were 100% because he was with them, because he was fighting for them, because he cared for them. Verse 14, now, the, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And so at this point, there's a transition between God speaking to Joshua speaking. And what's interesting here is that Joshua has an assumption, and his assumption is that idolatry is still an issue for the children of Israel. In fact, Leviticus 17 makes it clear that, God, that the Israelites struggled with worshiping a goat god, and it's assumed here that the people of Israel are still worshiping gods, that they've even assimilated some of the Egyptian gods, and Joshua knows that, and so he confronts them on it, and he says this in verse 15, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Verse 16, then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Sounds right. Sounds good. Exactly what you want to hear. They basically said, we're in. And yet, something is amiss. And Joshua sniffs it out. Look here at verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. You're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. Why would Joshua tell them that? Right? They just said the very thing he wanted them to say, right? He just said the very thing that we would have expected them to say, and yet he responds by saying, you're not able to serve the Lord. You can't do it. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you, right? This is incredibly anticlimactic. I don't know what Joshua's doing here. We need to ask the question, does this mean that God won't forgive them or us when we forsake the Lord? Most commentators say one of two things here. One, they say God won't forgive people if, after they vowed to serve him, they pursue and follow and worship foreign gods. That's number one. Or number two, he won't let those sins go unpunished. And I think it's actually both, and hear me out. God disciplines those he loves. That's what Hebrews 12 tells us. In other words, there are times where he punishes us in order to turn us back to himself, but he also doesn't forgive people who refuse to repent and refuse to worship him and refuse to trust in him, right? Forgiveness is not for everyone. 
but it's only for those who trust in him alone. That's true. Verse 21, but the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. We can do it. Then Joshua said, you're witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Again, this is a covenant renewal ceremony, right? They're renewing their vows. The form and the structure of all of this is known throughout the ancient Near East. And basically, they're going to record this to remember the gravity of their decision to worship, to serve, and to follow God. Verse 23, now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And again, I think maybe in some respects, the best New Testament uh, sort of uh, correlation here is the story of the rich young ruler, if you guys are familiar with Matthew chapter 19. And it's where this rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he basically says, teacher, good teacher, which by the way, he gets that thing wrong because Jesus isn't a teacher, he's God. But then he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the second thing he gets wrong because you don't do anything to inherit anything, right? If you guys remember that story. And what you remember is that Jesus says to him, he says, you know, obey all the commandments. And this rich young ruler says, got it, done, mission accomplished. And Jesus says, hey, one more thing. Go ahead and sell everything that you own and give it to the poor and then follow me. And what does the rich young ruler do? Says that he walked away sad because he was very wealthy. There was something standing between him and God. And that's exactly what Joshua realizes here is happening. He realizes they're going, we, we can do it. We're willing to sort of do whatever it takes. And Joshua says, you can't, right? Right, you cannot do it. Verse 24, and the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for, the, for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. Verse 27, see, he said to the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words of the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people each to their own inheritance. Okay, long section of scripture, right, admittedly. But again, these stories I think are important for us to read and important for us to, to, to percolate on. The question is, what do we see in this passage? And with so many of these passages, we really could preach three or four different sermons on this one text alone, and so I'm going to draw out just a couple simple points. The first simple point is one that I've made before, um, and I've made it over and over again. I will continue to make it over and over again, and it's this, that as humans, we will worship and serve something or someone. As human beings, we will worship and serve something or someone. We're made that way. It's how God designed us. We can't do anything but worship and serve something or someone. Look at verse 15. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're now living. Joshua was making a very clear assumption that the Israelites were going to worship and serve some god. He says, you're either going to serve the gods of your ancestors from 600 years ago, or you're going to worship the Canaanite gods, or you're going to worship the Lord. You, you can't choose whether or not you worship. You can only choose what to worship. Romans 1 makes that very same point. I'm going to read verses 21 through 25. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings or being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another 
they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Joshua here, Paul here, they're saying the same thing. They're basically saying, you're going to worship something. You're going to worship someone. The only real choice you get to make is who or what it is that you worship. I'm going to read a little section um, of something that I've read, I think, three times here at the church, and I reserve the right to read it a lot more times. I had a professor named Jack Collins in seminary, and he used to say, I have seven dead horses, and I reserve the right to beat them whenever I choose to. And this is one of those things. There's a man uh, named David Foster Wallace. Um, He was an English professor and a writer, uh, was a runner-up for the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, He committed suicide, I believe, back in 2008. And uh, he gave a commencement address to Kenyon College, and uh, the, the title of this talk is, This is Water. In other words, this is the water you swim in. This is the air you breathe. And what he said in his commencement address, though he was an atheist, is amazingly powerful. Listen to the words of David Foster Wallace. He, goes, he says this, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Again, he is an atheist. He says this, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, Jesus Christ, or Allah, or Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly because you don't measure up. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you and lay you in the ground. On one level, we all know this already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping that truth in front in daily consciousness. In other words, what he's saying is what Joshua is saying, is what Paul is saying, is what Tim Keller is saying, is what Augustine is saying, is what Martin Luther is saying, and what they're all saying and confirming is the same thing, that we are created to and will worship and serve something. What you control is what or whom you worship and serve. Make the wrong choice, and you'll become an addict, a puppet, enslaved to something that ultimately will make you less human. Make the right choice, and you'll be set free, free to become fully human. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. It's the first thing we see in that passage. You're going to choose to serve something and worship something. God will set you free. Anything else will enslave you. Second thing we see in this passage is ultimately um, the answer to the question of why we should choose to serve the Lord. In this narrative, the Israelites are given several distinct reasons why they should choose to serve the Lord, and he, they're listed as follows. First of all, God chose them, right? Verse 3 says, But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I chose Abraham. He blessed them. Verse 9 says, When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, and put a curse on him, on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again. 
God chose them. God blessed them. He provided for them. Verse 13, I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. God chose them, blessed them, provided for them. He protected them. Look at verse 6. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. And finally, he fought for them. Verse 8, I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you. Right, so God is basically building his case. He's saying, I want you to worship me. I want you to serve me and just listen to my record. I chose you. I blessed you. I provided for you. I protected you. And I fought and will fight for you. How do you sum up all of those things into one sort of overarching category that he did all those things? It sounds a lot to me like parents who have adopted a child, right? Because those are all things that a good parent will do for that child rescued out of the most dire of situations. There's a TV show, probably started in about 2011, called Parenthood. Um, and uh, we, Chris and I watched it a bit over the years, and... Um, there's a storyline that popped up into this, uh, into this story of parenthood that follows all these um, different children and marriages of this um, sort of patriarchal, matriarchal couple. And one of the, the uh, couples in the story is Joel and Julia Graham. And they're not able to have children of their own, and so they decide to try to adopt a child. And so um, they're looking to adopt a little baby, but the adoption falls through, and then they find out from defects that there's another uh, young boy that's a- available for adoption. He's eight years old. He's Hispanic. His name is Victor. And I'm going to read just really quickly about this uh, storyline very quickly. Uh, they invite him to live with them to ch- just to sort of try it out for a little while. And it says this, after living with the Graham family for a while, Victor starts to open up his heart, and then he suddenly draws back again. He refuses to eat meals with the family. He fights with his future sister and expresses hatred for Julia, his future mother. Ultimately, however, Victor trusts his new family precisely because they refused to give up on him. Sound familiar? Later in the show, Julia, the potentially adoptive mom, tells Victor, we're going to choose the date next week to finalize your adoption. Do you know what that means? Not really, Victor replies. Julia says, that means we're going to go to court, all of us together, and we're going to stand in front of a judge and we'll promise to take care of you. And we'll probably sign some papers, and we'll be your mom and dad from now on. Does that sound good to you? And Victor replies, sure, even though it's pretty clear he doesn't exactly understand what adoption means. And in the next episode, Victor finally understands the significance of his adoption. As he's racing through the house playing football, Victor accidentally smashes an expensive vase. When Julia races into the room, Victor says, I'm sorry, I'll I'll pay for it. And she says, it's okay, you don't have to pay for it, says Julia. Let's just go back to the no football playing in the house rule. Victor then says, so you're not going to change your mind about adopting me? She responds, no, I'm never going to change my mind. And unable to wipe the smile off of his face, Victor responds, okay. It's the knowledge of his adoption and of his parents' unconditional love that ultimately wins his heart, right? That's what God is telling the children of Israel here. It's what he's telling us. He didn't just adopt them and call them out of a foreign land and provide for them and protect them and fight for them. He's adopted and chosen us, and he protects and he fights for us. 
as well. Don't we all want that? Don't we all long for someone to fight for us? Don't we all long for someone to protect us? Don't we long for someone to provide us and to give us what we cannot gain for ourselves? And God says in this, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Let me end by saying this. I I don't know that I've mentioned Jesus yet. Maybe I did a little bit earlier in the service. And so the question is, when we read these Old Testament passages, we have to ask the question, where is Jesus? Because he's in all of these Old Testament passages. They're all about him. That's what he said in the New Testament. And it just so happens that in this passage of Scripture, we see him in verses 18 and 19. I read them earlier. It's where the people responded to Joshua's invitation to choose and to follow the Lord, where they said, we too will serve the Lord because he's our God. And Joshua replies to them by saying what? He says, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. In other words, God requires perfection, perfect service, perfect obedience, perfect faithfulness, and a holy devoted heart. Can you do that? Don't answer lightly. Don't speak too quickly because the answer is that you can't. The Israelites couldn't, right? We can't either, and we need to feel the weight of that. That's what Joshua was doing, right? Joshua needed the people to feel the weight. It's precisely that weight, the weight of their impotence, the weight of your impotence, that makes you cry out and trust in Jesus, because he's the only person who perfectly served his father. He's the only person who perfectly obeyed and was perfectly faithful. He's the only person who perfectly gave his whole heart, not only to God, but he gave his whole heart to us. And this passage, like every passage in the whole Bible, drives us, pushes us, forces us not to trust in ourselves, but rather to trust in him. Our job is to trust in Jesus. That's why Jesus told the crowds when he says this, they came to him and they said, well, what must we do to be saved? And in verse 29, Jesus says this, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Let me read that one more time, because in case you thought the work of God was to do X and Y and Z and the Ten Commandments and all this stuff, this is what Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Or in the words of Joshua, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. You can serve money, reputation, career, beauty, family, security. Whatever you put your identity in or find your security, you can worship those things, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that the, the refrain and the echo of your word, whether it's in Genesis or Joshua uh, or in Matthew, Father, wherever we find it in the Bible, that the echo and the refrain that we are given is that we cannot do it. We can't be good enough. We can't obey enough. We can't avoid disobedience enough, Father. And even our ability, Father, to do the one thing that saves us, to trust in your son Jesus, to believe in him, Father, Even that, your word tells us, is a gift that you give us, Father. So our salvation from beginning to end is because of you, just like it was for the Israelites. And so, Father, I pray that our hope, I pray that our trust, Father, I pray that our ability to praise you today 
would become uh, coming because we know that we have been given grace and mercy by you, our good Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.